Welcome to the 90 or Nothing podcast with hosts Paxton Pulford and Kylie Barnett. For this week's episode, we catch up with local scone identity Jim McCallum. Now, Jim is married to Linda McCallum, who we've previously had on our podcast, and is a livestock agent for the local business McCallum Inglis. Jim has a really great passion for the rural life and a massive interest in cutting horses, and lately he's become a bit of a poet. During this coronavirus lockdown period, he's managed to put together a few words, and you can view them on the NCHA website or on their Facebook page, so make sure you duck over to there and check that out. But uh, thank you, Jim. A big shout-out to you again for doing this. It was great to catch up with you. This interview has been proudly brought to you by Camp Draft Training Online. Make sure you duck over to their website, www.teamcto.com.au, and subscribe to get all the latest training videos from some of Australia's greatest Camp Draft trainers. These guys will seriously make a difference in your program. So remember, guys, when spurring and jerking just ain't working... Jump on www.teamcto.com.au. Yeah, Jim, it's good to join um, the other half of the McCallum clan. It's good to have you on the line. Thanks, Paxton. Uh, thanks for having me. I hear you're on top of a hill to get into service, so I love your commitment. Yeah, we're uh, out on top of a hill. It's the only spot we get any service where we live, and our internet is down at our house, so... We're doing a lot. We've got a bit of a beaten track up to where we get service. God, you guys are really doing it tough then considering we're in, in lockdown and now you've got no internet at home. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, um, it's actually been quite an interesting week. You, you realise how much you rely on it and then you get to a point where you realise how much you don't need it. So um, it's, it's been good in some respects. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Have you, have you guys been pretty busy at home there? We have been busy. We've um, been working our horses and, uh, you know, catching up on a lot of jobs that we wouldn't normally get to do. We're quiet at work, um, possibly because of the season and, and the rain that we've had, but also uh, to the due to the coronavirus, particularly with property sales and that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Well, Jim, take us right from the start. Where, where did it all begin for you guys? Where, like, where did you grow up and everything? Well, Paxton, I was born and bred in Scone. Uh, I am a, a local. My, both my parents grew up east of Scone within about 15 kilometres of each other, one at Moon End Flat and one at Beltrees. Uh, my father, um, he left the family property when he was 18. His father passed away and he, he decided to enter into stock and station agency and um, he was already going out with my mother and they got married and... Um, he went to Dubbo for a while and then came back to Scone, um, got married, uh, started a business in Scone with a, a local identity called Bill Rose. And my sister, who's three years older than me, we, we were both uh, grew up for the first sort of seven or eight years of our life in Scone, in Park Street, Scone, and then moved to a property my dad purchased just uh, west of Scone, 200 acres out there. What about where did you school, Jim? Did you just school at Scone? I did. I went to Scone Primary School and Scone High School and um, went all the way through there. And, and I, I guess, you know, I often get asked, where did I grow up? The real answer is probably west of Scone and at Scone Sayards. They're the two places where, you know, I most of my education come from. 
And we can still find you there, that's for sure. Yeah, and I haven't left. I've, you know, I'd hate to think the amount of hours I've spent at Scone Sale Yards. It'd be pretty frightening. And uh, I started going there from, you know, when I was seven or eight years old. And, and um, yeah, we've gone most sales ever since. Yeah. So on the um, when your dad purchased the property just outside of Scone, what was sort of running there? You just sort of fattening cattle or running cows or? Yeah, when we actually lived in when we lived, purchased that in 1980, and I was three years old at that point, and we were still living in Scone, and and it was always with the plan of purchasing a, a building a house. Uh, Dad, being an agent, um, has always, I guess, bought and sold, and and right throughout his life, you know, we've bought properties, done them up and sold them. The only difference being the one that we, we, my parents live on and I grew up, it's never been sold, but we've always had country. Like, and that's yeah. sort of, as much as we've been agents, we've also, I don't want to say property developers, but we've bought properties, done them, sold them, and then gone and bought another one, done the same thing. Yeah, right, eh? Fair enough. And so where did the sort of, when did you guys sort of get into horses? Did you have horses growing up as a kid? We did. Um, in a very, um, you know, we'd go out and we would ride, you know, Dad would buy a horse. Scone used to have a, a monthly horse sale and he'd see a pony there, buy it. And, you know, I was always interested in doing stock work and I did that. But my real introduction to horses came through my uncle, Ken McCallum, who a lot of camp drafters would know. Um he uh, he was on he actually took over the family property my father grew up on and and from probably when I was seven or eight years old I would go out the major a lot of holidays I'd go to his shearing um, if he was branding calves I spent a lot of time with Ken and I guess that's where I fell in love with with stock work and riding and mustering and he had eight thousand acres out there and was very keen on his horses you know you never got you only got off your horse to cut a calf but aside from that you were you know you were on them the whole time and some big days mustering and i absolutely loved it yeah well kenny's a life member of the abcra isn't he he is um he's i would say he's won in excess of three or four hundred camp drafts i would i would about a guess um his father, Ian McCallum, uh, he was the inaugural winner of the ABCRA Rider of the Year, I think in 1948. I've got the trophy at home. It's one of my prized possessions. Um, and, um, yeah, he, um, he he sort of come back from the Second World War, bought a motorbike. He was a signalman in the Second World War, bought yeah. a motorbike, rode it across a gully and couldn't get it through the gully. It fell over and he come back and said to my father and Uncle Ken, you blokes can have that thing. I'm going back to the horses. And he never <laughs> rode it since. So, yeah, we've come from a, a line of horse people um, and always had a passion for them. Yeah. So growing up as a kid, you'd often go out there and, and you know, spend days working out there in the holidays or something, would you? Yeah, I would. And, and I, I, you know, I, I was very fortunate in that, I mean, Uncle Ken was always had really high quality horses and, and you know, they're phenomenal horses to ride in, in the bush. And, and um, you know, he there was never a shortage of a horse to ride out there. It was, you know, jump on that one and, 
I can remember when I was really young, I rode a mare called Zanza Lee, who got uh, second in the Warwick Gold Cup. I think might have got second in the World Championship draft. And, you know, that I'd be burning around on her and knew absolutely nothing and probably don't know a lot more, but I, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, yeah, that was sort of your more traditional sort of stock horse lines back then, eh? Definitely, definitely. He, they, they had a horse called Sage King, who sired probably Ken's most successful horse, a horse called um, Kintyre, who he, um, uh, he, I think he won at Sydney Show on him and won a lot of open drafts. And he was in the era when Bob Palmer had a great mare called Breezette. Yeah. And Kintyre and Breezette used to go up against each other quite a lot. And it was. That was a little before my time, but the Sage King was was a bit of a cornerstone of the horses they had. Yeah, okay. They had a fair old strong introduction to the horse horse side of things anyway. I did, Paxton, but I never competed. I never went to Pony Club. I didn't ride in a camp draft until I was, I would say, 18. When I turned 18, my uncle gave me a, a gelding called Eli, who he'd won a maiden and three novices on as a tw- as an 18th birthday present. Yeah. And um, I was very fortunate in that that horse, um, you know, became developed my interest in camp drafting and and uh, yeah, we we progressed to to doing that. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. So so you guys so you only yeah that's pretty. How come you didn't compete as a young kid like um, through the ranks, you know? I was a very passionate cricketer, um, oh. and I played I played a lot of cricket. Um, and my father was also a very passionate cricketer, and and I you know I played for Hunter Valley Central North. Um, I made an honoured state squad in when I was seventeen, um, and I I guess that was probably my my first passion at that point. And I also got heavily involved in showing cattle. Um, I had an Angus stud. I was showing steers right throughout school. That started when I was 10. Yeah, right. eh? So obviously this cricket trait's pretty strong in the McCallum blood because I know your son, Pete, he's right into it. He's very keen. He's very keen. The the, the horses, I think, um, were something that, that, you know, I would have been keen on if if the opportunity was there to, to do it. But I guess, um, you know, my father being an agent here, and they were at that point, they were, you know, they, Rose McCallum, as it was then, was, was going really, really well, but it was very full on. They had six branches uh, from Dunnydoo to Maitland, and so he was pretty time poor, and my mum, um, she was loved her horses, but I wouldn't say was a confident horse person. So really had no means other than Uncle Ken to compete on them, and you know he lived fifty kilometres away, so it wasn't just as as easy as to hop and hop on and go somewhere. So I rode, I rode a lot at home though. Yeah, yeah. So from the age of eighteen onwards, you sort of got onto a few more horses and started competing. I did. I um I started camp drafting. Um, I wouldn't say competitively because I knew absolutely nothing really. I mean, in terms of, I guess I had the had the um, you know, I worked with a lot of cattle, so that wasn't difficult for me. But I didn't have a lot of horse horsemanship skills. Yeah. And it probably um, 
it probably took, you know, when I started going out with, with Linda when I was 24, I think, um, that was when I realised what I didn't know about horses and, and you know, good I, at we, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair enough. So she sort of introduced you to a bit more of that competitive side and the horsemanship thing. Definitely, she was at that point. It was right at the start of um, uh, at that point. Uh, her good mate and I know you've had Linda on the podcast, but her good mate started going out with Tom Williamson. We started going to different things with them. An odd camp draft. We'd go to their place and. It was then when we sort of realised we, well, that was our first introduction to cutting and I guess, you know, when you were camp drafting, you watched Tom's horses and thought, hang on a minute, you know, we can we can do a lot more here and we purchased a mare out of the futurity, um, uh, Tassilina mare. It was, a, was, was the first real horse that I rode that I went, there is, you know, better than what I've ridden. And, and it wasn't to say that those horses weren't good horses that I had ridden, but just didn't have the level of training. Yeah. Yeah. So that really opened you up for that sort of thing. Yeah, it did. And, and it opened our eyes. And, and I mean, that mare was a, we took her to a, she was a three-year-old. We've got a picture up from the futurity. The next weekend, we got a late entry in, um, uh, the Canamble uh, was the quarter horse national championships, I think. And the very first run, the mare had Linda had a run on her, and I was entered in the maiden. And I was going to ride her in the maiden, and Linda went out and won the ladies' draft on her, a very first run. She actually she ran a ninety, and then had to run off with Chrissy Hall, yeah. and and ran another ninety on her. And the mare had never ever chased a beast. Far out. That's awesome. And I didn't get I didn't get to ride a Pax because she was no longer a maid. Well, you wouldn't want to stuff her up now, Jim, would you? Well, yeah, no, no, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, Linda's been very, very, I guess, um, you know, she's been very encouraging of of me and and my daughter and then my son and on a horsemanship level. And you know, there's been times where she's pushed really hard to. To improve us all and and um you know we're probably i'm probably not the greatest student but i have learned a lot like through not just linda but you know people that we've met and been introduced to in the camp drafting and cutting world yeah no doubt well i'm just going to pull you back a little bit jim and and talk to us a little bit about the business mccallum inglis that you guys own and run talk to us about where it's come from and and what's happening with it now well, we're a, we're a stock and station agency in Scone. Uh, the business itself, it went from Rose McCallum in the, in the 70s and, and 80s to McCallum Ritchie in the 90s to McCallum and Company in the late 90s to McCallum Inglis in the early 2000s. Um, I started work there in 1996. Yeah. Um, went from school. I worked on a, a an Angus stud east of Scone for eighteen months. I did my stock and station agents license straight out of school, and then went into the business. Um, I I always at school. I, I guess it just I always kind of knew that that was there for me to go into that business, whether that was a a good or a bad thing. But it was that was what I, I kind of wanted to do, and I got 
really passionate about it and the cattle and and so I went into that business and um, yeah we've it's been a, a a great learning curve for me and a, I see agency as a wonderful opportunity to you see how people do things all the time you're always going to different places and looking at different cattle and different operations and so you always yeah. get that opportunity to to, to kind of take things that they do and 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 do them yourself yeah well as you mentioned before you spend a heck of a lot of time in the sale yards so yep. talk to us a little bit more about the like the art of you know buying and selling cattle like that well the the, the sale yards is such a like the, the fat sale, particularly on a Tuesday, is is you know that cattle that go there are got there's a there's a value that is attained and they're sold. They're sold to meat companies and restockers and whatever else. But no, they're rarely ever passed in at a fat sale, and the cattle go there to be valued and sold. And as an auctioneer and as an agent, you know that's what you're doing. You're valuing things all the time. And and one of the great lessons I've learned in life, Paxton, and and it's something that you know, I still instill in my kids and, and it's been instilled in me is, is to know what things are worth and what they're truly worth. And I've always, you know, be it cattle, horses, property, you know, most things that you own, your vehicles, like know that if you have to sell them tomorrow, what they're worth. And yeah. I think it's imperative to, to know that because you can't get in any trouble. And I, you know, that's one thing I've probably with with what Linda and I do with our horses, we've taken that those same principles into what we do with our horses. Um, Linda, I mean, neither of us do it professionally, but we do try and, and make money out of it. And, and we're always, you know, at any point, we always look at our horses and say, well, what's your worth? We had to sell it tomorrow and, and, and try and know what that is. And that way, you know, you, you, you don't turn up to a sale and, and, you know, expecting a certain value and then get disappointed, and 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 also too, I don't. You don't make decisions based on it. Like so many people with selling things, value it according to what that's cost them, but the cost has nothing to do with what something's worth. You know, what something's worth is 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 purely based on what the highest bidder thinks they're prepared to pay. You know, it's it's nothing more than that. It's not. You know, I, I might have a, a metallic cat out of a great mare, but if it's not much of a tie, I can't say, well, the service fee is 15000 it was an embryo, and I've spent 5000 riding it, so therefore it's worth 25000 Because Jim yeah. McCallum and Paxton, when we go to buy it, uh, we just look at it and go, well, I'd give you fifteen for it. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And that's all the value is, and I... I'm, it's something that um, I, Linda and I always try and do when we, we go to horse sales is really work out what that, that actual value is, and I, whether it's a horse sale or a cattle sale or a bull sale. or And because I've come from that background and I see that mistake made so often, you know, people overvaluing things and, and then wondering why they can't sell it. Yeah. Yeah. So what what – what would be some of the things you see in key aspects like when you guys go to a sale and, and whether you're buying or selling, what are some other little, you know, things you make sure you guys check off your list, you know? 
Well, if, if, if we'll cover the, the selling first. I mean, I go there and I, I, I mean, it's hard if you're in the first few horses, but I try and assess where the market's at. But I also have a pretty good idea of, of, of what I think is worth. And it, it, or, but I, it's not like if I think the horse is worth 30000 I'd put a reserve of twenty. Yeah. Uh, because I want it to get there or thereabouts, but I'm not afraid to leave something there for the next person buying it because I would sooner someone take my product and think they got value. Um, and we've tried to buy, build our, our business on that. Like, not pass, we, we're yet to pass. Like, the first horse we passed in was actually Metallic Storm. And um, other than that, I think we've sold. 13 or 14 horses through Landmark or Nutrient and, and we've never ever passed one in because we've always kind of felt like we've advertised them, prepared them to the best of our ability. That's what the market said they were worth. We'll cop that. Yeah. We've, we've tried to do our homework. We've tried to, you know, get to the people who we thought might be interested in them. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the market values them and, yeah, you'll have disappointing sales and you'll have sales where you exceed it, but I think you've got to you've got to take a, a long long term vision with it. Um, that yes, I might have sold this horse this year for you know ten thousand when I really thought he was worth fifteen. But that person goes out, does really well, loves the horse. That positivity will help sell your next one, and you hope ultimately that that leads to it working in the opposite. So. You know, you yep. wanted 15 and he makes 25 because that person said, well, I know he'll sell it. And, it, yeah, you know, that it works like that. Sales are purely momentum. And, and if you can make people believe that they're for sale, they'll, they'll sell really, really – generally, they'll make their value. Yeah, yeah. So then um, what about from terms of a buying perspective? Well, from a buying perspective – I mean, selling or buying, one of the hardest things, and, and horses are, are, are a different proposition to cattle because there's such an emotional connection to a horse. You know, you've you've either bred it or bought it or broke it in or, you know, you've rugged it, you've, you've nurtured it. You know, there's you've formed an attachment with it. So it – but you have to remove that when you sell it or buy it. You, yeah. you really do. Like, yeah. you can't go – you know, oh, that's how that great old mare that I got at home that I just loved a bits and it's buy this horse and – and I see so many people do that, and then they pass it in at, at twenty thousand when they could have got fifteen. Then they think about it, and then a day later they'll say, "Yeah, I'll take my fifteen and they get offered twelve. You know, they they cost themselves money by being too emotionally connected. So I I'm a big believer either way. But when you go buying, the same thing. Like, don't get caught up in rose-colored glasses. Say. I think the horse, you know, he's worth twenty thousand to me, no more. He's worth ten or whatever. That's where I go to. Yeah. And if I want to buy that at an auction, um, I don't. If you want to buy something to to, to where you think your value is, um, and I, I, I've seen a lot of the thoroughbred when you're talking about big money and and you've seen from that background. One of the keys is is don't let it build momentum when you're trying to buy buy something. So you've got twenty thousand to buy a horse. If you let it get started at three, 
you're going to hope you're going to probably have four people come in and bid on that horse. That builds momentum when you're an auctioneer. You've, you've gone, you know, there's yes, 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 yes. So you're three, four, six, eight, ten. You know, you, it goes. Yeah. If, if you if you think the horse is worth twenty and you yell out ten, you take out probably two of those people. Yeah. So you you get back to, um, you get back to you know you might be only competing against one other guy, but he might you might subconsciously put it in his head. Geez, you know this this Paxton Fulford's here to buy this horse. Yeah. You know, he's kicked it at ten. You know they're going to go pretty hard. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm a big believer in that and and even if you're buying a horse privately you see so many people i mean the art of negotiation is to make someone think that you're on their side like in a private treaty situation you see people go and you know, i want 10 for this horse and you offer them five and you straight away alienate that person yeah that's where if you'd have offered him seven or eight he might have gone, well he's not far away okay i'll meet in the middle or and but you've got to be you've got to be confident in what you want to pay, and that's the with selling or buying. Know what that is, what that price is. It's so important. Yeah. So when you're buying, um, you know, especially horses, are you sort of looking at at a prospect of being able to turn them over in the future to generate a profit? Really. Um. I would say yes, but, I mean, first and foremost, I'm trying to buy the best horse for my money. And um, so if it's out of a sale, like like Nutrien, for example, I'd, we'd go there. If we, You know, Linda and I have bought a, a couple of two-year-olds out of there, and we go through the catalogue and we'll mark out what we think will suit. We look at them, um, and we then ascertain – how realistic we are like take the last sale uh, mark buttsworth's metallic cult that well the one that he put through yeah. like that horse that horse was you you knew he was going to make 100 we were never ever a, a shot at, at buying him um but so you can almost just scratch him off your lift list you can go well we won't you know we can't do that but there might be he's one you'd put on your list go have a look you hear that, you know, well, apparently there's a lot of interest in him. It's not that you don't be there, but you then move to your next one. Well, you know, you might find another two-year-old there that might be green or whatever. And same thing, you look at it, you say, well, if we could buy that horse for 10, um, we think it's a good enough type. We'll give it a shot in the cutting pen. It's a good enough type to come back, draft here, Um and we think we can probably sell that when it's going, being through the futurity for 30. You know, that that's how we operate. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. So then what, for you guys, I know, well, like we've heard Linda's story about the shift into the cutting pen. Was yours, you know, did you, did you just follow along with her? Like, were you sort of on board to get a lot, you know, straight onto the cutting pen or did you keep camp drafters? What was your go there? We were doing a bit of both. Um, we had that Tasselina mare and and a couple of others that we were drafting. Um, we then decided to have a go on Tom Williamson's suggestion at training a snaffle bit horse. So the first year I trained a one more playboy mare and Linda t- trained an acres gelding, who's now our old turnback horse. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. um, and um, I ended up, due to my work, I got to the Futurity. The Futurity always coincides with a Hunter Valley Angus sale, and I couldn't show. So Linda showed the mare that I'd trained, and um, that was sort of the start of it, you know, for, for both of us, the snaffle bit, competing at some snaffle bits on a weekend. Uh, work always dictated that I didn't probably have – the time to 100% commit to it. Um, Linda, we bought a, a gelding that she showed for a while and then we um, decided to buy another horse, with, which I started on, which was a, a Pepto Stylish Oak gelding. And he was really nice horse and, you know, he covered for a lot of my mistakes. Um, and it enabled me to, to get going and understand how to show one hand down to a to a certain level there's still a hell of a lot I'd love to improve on but um, as far as um, as far as sort of showing yeah I've, I've probably showed more you know when they've got the horses have got a bit older and due to oh, I just uh, until probably the last 18 months I haven't really had the time to consistently train one Linda's had to do a lot of it herself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what about what you guys are some of the probably most dedicated non-pro riders I know? Just tell us a little bit about home life. You know, what sort of, you know, a day in the life of the McCallums at the moment? Well, Paxton, it's um, it's hectic. Um, we've always, whether we were cutting or not, we've always had projects, Linda and I. And we've we've always sort of had the attitude of. of bite off more than you can chew and chew like hell. Like that's sort of been our philosophy. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess what home life is, is like for us, I mean, at, right at the moment we have three maturity horses, three three-year-olds, we have three twos, and we have two yearlings that I've just started breaking in one of those. So there's seven horses that have been ridden. Um, most, most of the time... It's get up at five, uh, work those horses, um, you know, hopefully have them done by 7.30, 8 o'clock if, you know, I go to work or wherever to do what I have to do there. And, and that's just, just our system and how we roll. Um, I ride the horses as breakers and green two-year-olds until, you know, they're safe enough that they're not going to flip over on Linda or – and then she takes over there and I turn back. Um, you know, both of us, we, we really try and work together. Like we'll try and, you know, I'll, if I think she's not doing something that, you know, she's a bit short or or maybe, um, you know, horse is, is being a bit late or whatever, I'll say that, um, vice versa. Um, you know, but I, I really enjoy – I love the training aspect and that's what drew us to cutting in the first place is both Linda and I love the – just watching the progression in the horses, whether I'm riding them or not. Uh, I love, you know, seeing those horses gradually start to take a hold of a cow and and it, it, it really – it's it's if I never showed a horse, just watching that, I, I get a real kick out of that. Yeah. yeah. What's – What's your favourite time part of the sort of two-year-old, three-year-old year? Like, when what top part of the year do you most enjoy watching? When do you see that transition? I I love it from about 
um, I reckon October through to January before the futurity, when they kind of progressed from being helped to starting to 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 take that commitment. And I really feel like in a futurity horse, like that is at the point where where you find out what you've got. I mean, you can never know until you show them. You, you have some horses that that you know get better through it, and and others that that you know maybe struggle with it and and aren't as committed. Um, but no matter what, I've I've never we've never ever taken a horse to the futurity that wasn't better for the experience. I mean, it just makes horses out of them. And why I think I I kind of I feel like. And I, I, I'm a procrastinator and I'm someone that unless there is something that we have to get to, I'll find a reason not to do it. And yeah. I know that in myself. Yeah. And, and that's why the futurity is great because we know Amelia Tonkin and all the people that, that we're competing against, they're riding their horses every day and we have to have that same level of commitment. And so that's what we try and do to the best of our ability. Yeah. 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 And then, well, so what else? What do you find that's so addictive about the sport of cutting? Um, Paxton, I guess first and foremost, it's the horses. Uh, they are. It's amazing the level of commitment they will give. Um, you know, when you when you ride those those horses that are trying so hard for you, you. And I, particularly, you know, when I first started, I mean, I, I I struggled with my feet, and I still do, but I struggled a lot. And you would feel a horse, like, take a hold of a cow and just fight like nothing else to, to hold it. And I found that just amazing. You know, you, you didn't care if you didn't get your lot, even if you lost a cow or you – I mean, the last show I went to – one of my runs, I lost a cow. It was just the best feeling to feel that level of commitment that that horse gave me. Like, I came out afterwards and, you know, I felt like I'd won it and I'd lost a cow, you know, but that horse just fought and fought. I mean, the cow was charging her and she was finding a way to, to get in front of it and hold it. And I, I think that that's what makes it so amazing. Yeah, I actually remember watching that run and, yeah, that horse was phenomenal on her level of commitment to you know, just to put a body on the line, essentially. She did, and, and, and that's, you know, when you think you've got an animal that is thinking independently to give you that level of commitment. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's the same with watching a dog work for you, but when you think about a, a cutting horse, you're sort of turning their instincts. They're a flight animal, and you're teaching them to be a hunter when they're working a cow. As yep. where a dog, I mean, yep. you're only honing the instincts that are naturally in him anyway, and... I think that's amazing that you can do that, and those horses will will turn around and hunt that cow. You know, it it, it is it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, for sure. So, what was has there been like a really memorable moment throughout your sort of cutting career? Whether it might have been you or Linda or your kids, or has there been a specific moment that stood out? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, there's 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 been a fair few. I. Uh, uh, one of the one of the um, one of the big moments, and I mean, Link Bowman kind of progressed us in cutting. And one of the big moments for for us was um, when Linda trained her first futurity winner, which was a horse called Get Hawkey. Well, 
first futurity, she won the amateur futurity on another girding, but like uh, she won like the non-pro at Victoria and and um, I remember on in the final, um, Linda, we, we had a cattle that we wanted to cut and being a husband and wife, Phil Dawson was in the other corner, uh, Linda said to me, Jim, where's our other cow? I said, he's over here. He's this, I described him being an agent. I described him as a, this <laughs> B-muscled show steer. You know, he looks like a show steer, this big, heavy-muscled. And I think Linda's words were to me, well, Jim, it's not a bloody carcass competition. Just point to which one it is. <laughs> and Phil Dawson yelled out, Linda, if you two want to stop arguing, um, you can probably win this if you just get that cow cut. That's a moment. It was a really good moment, and, and it was that was really good. But look, we've had a lot of great moments watching um, Olivia and Pete show. Was that's the most nervous I've ever been helping anyone? Yeah. Uh, another run, I helped Link Bowman in the corner when he won the gelding stakes on a one stylish Pepto gelding, and he marked a I think it was like a seventy six or something. It was just a phenomenal run. And that was really, that was really good. Like that was probably the first time I'd ever sat in the corner. Wasn't the very first, but that was the first time I'd ever helped anyone outside of Linda. And, and, um, that was really, really good feeling. Like knowing that you're kind of in a small way, part of that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many moments I I love, I love all aspects. I love the, the picking cattle and sitting in the corner. I love the, you know, the people, the, the, systems in place that that kind of allow the sport to happen the settling and when you understand what they're trying to do it's it's there's a lot of science behind it and i i just i guess i enjoy all of it yeah well i was gonna say i often see you at the futurity especially up in the cow box or or settling cows you know um you know what sort of goes on up there what's what are you sort of you know i'm sure there's plenty of words getting said there but what sort of the go up there um it's, it's really interesting, like, a lot of people that don't know anything about cutting, and I was exactly the same. You go there and you see a 35-minute settle and you think, this is just a waste of time. But then when you understand the psychology behind what they're trying to do and getting those cattle to be settled with the horse going through them and pull to that back gate so that they're in the centre and um, it's it's actually it's phenomenal for the cattle and, and – it makes them so settled and relaxed. You can watch a herd come in and be all spooky and flighty and just watch them soften. And I, that, you know, it changes cattle forever doing that. I, and it's changed how I work cattle in the sale yards, watching that process. Right. Um, in, in understanding, you know, the point of balance. And if I go, I mean, we, we often – uh, I guess um, we use a bit of poly and a heap of noise to accentuate that we're in the wrong position, you know, to help us because we're in the wrong position. Mm-hmm. I, I now, I now, I barely make a sound when I work cattle at the sale yards, and I'm probably the only person up there that does, but only because it's shown me that I'm 90% of the time when I'm doing that and I'm swinging a bit of poly, I'm in the wrong spot. Not yeah. all the time. You, you know, there's some cattle you have to do that. But when I'm sitting up there in that cow box, I mean, we're trying to fit cattle to horses that we're showing and trying to, you know, un- uh, 
know what ones we're going to do dependent on where our draw is, what ones we're looking for. Now get a list of, of, you know, we might have up to 30 cattle written down if we're late in the herd and know them. And even if they're all blacks, you know, we've got to distinguish them to make sure we're cutting fresh cattle or cattle that we want to cut. Yeah. And I love the challenge of that. So would you say the sport of cutting, it's almost, you know, it's as much stockmanship as it is horsemanship, really? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, I mean, camp drafting is no different. It, it's just that you're probably putting a greater degree of pressure on an animal in a camp draft because every like the camp is smaller, so they don't have that that, that space, so you're, you're in their bubble a lot more. And then outside, rather than trying to head them, you know, you're still trying to keep that forward momentum. Um, so there's a, obviously a high level of stockmanship there, but cutting is a sport of accuracy. And if you aren't in the right spot, that cow will beat you in a heartbeat. And that was the hardest part for me. And when I started, I just realised how little I knew of where the right spot is. And it wasn't – and, I, I mean, I, I still – at times struggle with where I need to be, like where is that point? And you've got to get that horse there. Um, some cattle, you know, you might need to you might need to give more space, you might need to pressure a little more to get them cut. You know, there's all those things that come into it that you have to make. And I I, I really enjoy that that psychology of that. What it one, what it does to the to the cattle, but you know, you've seen people uh, change their, tra- their training methods to adopt to cattle that are, you know, putting pressure on. We, Linda and I went to the American Futurity a few years ago and we noticed that all the guys were cutting right up high and then ending up back on the herd. And one, it was to keep their horses on the hocks, but it was also to just to keep taking the pressure off the cattle so they didn't quite fight them as hard. Yeah. Um, that was really, really interesting. And so we come back and, and, and brought that into our horses. And then, you know, now we've, we've sort of got to still then have the capacity to get our horses back up and out of the herd with our hands down. I struggle with that a lot. But, you know, you need that button on them to be able to, to do that. So you get a, a cow that's pretty tough. You need to give ground to him. to If you stay in his face, he's going to hit you really hard and – yeah, so there's there's all those things that you're trying to assess when you're watching cattle and when you're showing and and it, it is it, it it's it's stockmanship and it's reading cattle at a at a at a really deep level. So would it be fair to say that you've learned more about how to work cattle in the last how how many years since you started cutting, and to previous before that, you know? Oh, absolutely, Paxton. Like I've I've changed. Um, I guess, you know, we get to scone sale yards and if we've got a fair few cattle in, um, you know, you're under pressure because you're trying to get them penned up and go back and get the next ones off a truck. But often, you know, that pressure and that noise is slower than just get to the right spot, back the pressure off them, give them a bit more space. So, yeah, it's changed a lot. I know um, on our own place with our own cattle, um, even if you're on a motorbike or – I, I get a lot more aware of entering a herd or an individual animal's bubble and how that affects him and changes him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a lot more aware of that as where before I'd have, you know, 
gone there at 100 miles an hour, made a heap of noise and hope he went the right direction. You know? and, and it might, may have got the job done once or twice, but the cattle got harder and harder to deal with. Rather, this way the cattle improve. You know, they get easier, they get quieter, they get more accepting of you and, and happy for you to be in their space. Yeah. And was that sort of like, you know, a little a light switch moment that happened to you or was it a tough pill to take? You know, you sort of had to realise you had to change what you are doing? Um, yeah, it was because I suppose, you know, you've, I had, um, yeah, probably 30 years of doing something a certain way and now, you know, I, I'm doing it a different way and, um, it was more an evolution of realising, well, I'm actually, the noise I'm making is not making any difference. You know, yeah. it's, it's, when I'm making that noise, I'm beating anyway. I need to get in the right spot. You know, that's... You're just hurting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying that that um, that's, there's still a, a like, I, I go to a camp draft now and and. and I, well, that's the thing that I notice is how much noise people make. I, it really stands out to me. Like, and I, I often wonder, you know, what would happen if that was one of the things they bought in and said you're not allowed to make any noise. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, you know, yeah, they're making noise to to keep that animal away because they're under pressure. But a lot of times they're making noise because they're not in the right spot, and it's exactly like me in the yards. At the, Sayards or wherever under heaps of pressure trying to frighten this thing back off me because I'm chasing it in the camp or or whatever. I mean, I'm I'm no I'm not going to con- profess to being a phenomenal camp drafter or anything like that. And but I do kind of think you know when you go to the cutting pan and you realise your accuracy and you can't make noise, um, you, you all it is is accuracy. You know, the sport is is all those top trainers will say to you. You just need to be in the right spot, get to the right spot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what about, you mentioned just before that you guys went over to the States for a bit. Uh, what what did you guys do over there? What what did you experience over there? I've, I've been really fortunate. Um, I, was, I went to uh, Metallic Cats Futurity Year. I wish at the time I'd have been smart enough to recognise that he is what he is and come back and bred a heap of mares to him. I wasn't. But that was probably the, my first introduction to cutting in the in the US and to see at what level it's done, and that was really really good. I went over with Tom Williamson and Jamie Inglis and went round with Hayden Upton looking at horses, and that was awesome. Um, yeah. And then then Linda made the um, um, the Australian non-pro team that competed at El Rancho. Oh, I'm going to say five or six years ago, and that was our next trip horse-wise. Um, and she, at that point, she then went to Johnny Mitchell's and I came home. But that was really, really, really good because I got to meet a lot of those trainers and and get to know them a, a, a little bit. And I'm not going to say well because, I've you know, I, I, I know Johnny Mitchell reasonably well but um, and Hayden, but, you know, I got to meet Gary Gonzalez and Morgan Kramer and Grant Setnicker and Adan Buenuelos and and go and watch them work in the practice pens, and that was a really good experience. And then we went back um, oh, two years ago this September, um, and Linda competed again, and this time 
I was I was really fortunate to see Todd Graham. Um, he got to, was asked to work a lot of the three year olds that Adan and Grant Setnica and Russ Westfall had, and yeah, in um, Lloyd Cox. Um, that was actually at Louisiana. We went there before we went to the event Linda competed at, and oh, that so was you really Lloyd Cox. I met Lloyd Cox. I can tell you my introduction to Lloyd Cox was Linda and I walked up and Todd said, Jim, Linda, this is Lloyd Cox. And he looked at Linda and he looked at me and he said, um, I'll remember her name in 15 minutes. I probably won't remember yours. That was my first introduction to Lloyd Cox. But we got to watch him work. He, he's three-year-olds and... Like, he literally worked those three-year-olds in the practice pen. I would not say for any more than about three minutes. Really? Wouldn't even be that, I reckon. You know, some of them was just like six turns. Yep, that's good. Get me another one. And that was that was wow. really interesting. And got to sort of have an odd comment with him while he was doing that. And he was just like, he's doing everything I asked him to do. Why ask for more? Yeah. Um, that was interesting. Uh, when we were, went, sorry, you were saying that um, you you're watching Todd Graham get to work a few of those three year olds. Um, yeah. You know what, what was that like? What were some of the things you were picking up there, or you know the differences he was finding? Well, what was really interesting was he went down to work Grant Setnicker's horses. The Todd knew Grant Setnicker and. Um, Grant had asked him the day before, would you come and work? He said, I've got a really good highbrow cat stud that I really like. And Todd was like, yeah, I'll come down. What time? And I think we got there at 4.30 in the morning and and Grant's uh, workers had the horses there, but there's no Grant. And one of the girls <laughs> said, are you the Australians to work our horses? And and um, Todd's like, yeah, I'm the guy. And so he said, Mr. Setnick is not feeling real well. He said, you hop on and start working. Well, Todd hopped on a horse that um, uh, was a highbrow cat stud out of um, a mare that's in Australia's mother. Um, Peter Schumacher's got a little mare called Purdy, Purdy Boy Flash. Uh, oh, anyway, a few people would know her that is a really, really good mare and was it's a half to this cult that Todd worked. Well, he worked this horse and it was really, really good. And in the middle of working him, Grant turned up and said, what do you think of my horse? And and Todd said, um, oh, I just feel like he's really, really nice horse, but he's just like to the right. I feel like he's just leaning in a little. And and Grant said, and he jumps off the fence and said, you just marked a 76 on that goddamn son of a bitch. And, you know, you don't tell me. And it was really, really funny. Like, but Todd, what what I what I ascertained from it all, and and in the background, working horse for horse was Grant Setnicker and and Adan Benwales. And Adan watched Todd work this horse, and he hopped off and he said, "Will you work this one for me?" And it was um, a um, horse that he got second, ended up getting second in the futurity that year. And Adan, it was really interesting because he said, um, Todd, I feel like um, my father says to me that my horses are thinking 60% about me and 40% about the cow. 
And yeah. of everyone I've asked who can help me to get that blend right, it all comes back to you. I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos of your horses, and I was wondering if you would work my maturity horses. Well, Todd got to work them, and, and you know, he, he actually went through and not only his maturity horses, like worked the horse, uh, Metallic Cat, I think he was a stud. I think he's called like Pedal to the Metal that he won, but won the Metallic uh, metallic cat stakes or something, or he won a lot. The horses won three or four hundred thousand. Yeah. And Todd was, you know, it was interesting how he was trying to build more cow in that in those horses. Really? Yeah, and he, I mean, he was doing it by just through feel and making that cow find the middle of the cow, and and it was oh, it was awesome. And but what was great was that here's a Dan Buenwales who's won three million dollars in cutting. And, you know, had a horse that ultimately went on and got second in open futurity. And and yet he was sitting there trying to pick the brains of someone and get better. And, yeah, I had a lot of, lot of respect for that. And I guess what it sort of showed me is that whether you, you know, no matter what level you're at, you never master it. There's always something you can do better. Yeah, that must have been an awesome experience to be able to witness that. Yeah, it was. It was. And, I mean, you watched Adan. He was like me asking, you know, anyone, hey, what, what am I doing wrong? You know, he was just like any non-pro, you know, like me. And it, it, But it was great. He was humble enough to do that. And, you know, he picked up a lot from it, I'm sure. And, and you know, Todd was, you know, he just worked the horses and he was really honest. He wasn't. You know, he didn't sugarcoat anything. If he thought a horse was doing something, he said it. And, um, yeah, it was it was just a really cool thing to witness. Yeah. No, I feel credit to our Australian trainers. Um, it's good to see that, you know, they, they were, cutting's not a heritage sport. You know, we can, we've still got the ability to adapt and, you know, and offer something to, you know, to the elite level. Uh, absolutely. And I think, um, I think what, what those Australians, why I, I believe that they are so successful and you John Mitchells and Spud Sheens and Haydens and, you know, the Flynn brothers that have done really well over there. I mean, they have such a strong work ethic, but I also think sometimes that because they don't have as many preconceived notions of how something is done, they it's a lot more figuring it out yourself and then, then adapting to it. Yeah. Um, I know, you know, we've we've had a bit to do with Mitch and well, Linda more than me, but at Slate River we've been there a couple of times and and one of the great things about him is is that it's it's about producing a cutting horse, but it's pre- about producing a horse that can do anything, you know, is will collect, is is balanced, is you know, light in the bridle, is responsive and that's what we loved about his program and, and you know, a lot of the American trainers, maybe it's just about producing a cutting horse because that's where the money is and, and that's what they do. Our, our program here is, is you know, cutting is, is one thing and, yeah, you can do quite well at it, but there's nowhere near the money. So you've got to have a horse that can go from that cutting pen and camp draft, play polo cross, go to a pony club or whatever. I mean, that versatility here is paramount and that's what we try and work on. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, what, what's uh, 
what's on the horizon for you guys? What are you sort of aiming at now, or what's what's the future hold for you guys? Well, um, I guess you know our futurity horses um, and our twos, and we're trying to get them as progressed as we can. Um, so we're working really hard on that and getting them as as, as far down the track as we can. Um, we have a property on King Island off the northwest coast of Tassie that we run cattle on there. So we're, you know, trying to negotiate through coronavirus how to keep it going, which is a challenge. Um, yeah. And then in, in the midst of all that, you know, we've got a, a 13-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl who are homeschooling and, and you know, keeping their passions and, and their dreams going. So... Yeah, we're, we've sort of got plenty to do, but we love doing it. Yeah. And what about, Jim, what about um, this year? Obviously, you guys sold Metallic Storm, um, but what are you guys thinking about breeding to? Um, you know, you've got a couple of pretty decent good mares. What are you guys going to look at breeding to this year? Um, still really hasn't been locked in. Uh we bred a, a mare to Metellus cat, and we've, from what we're hearing from a few people in the States, they're really liking them, and we saw some Metellus cat two-year-olds when we last over there. They're really good types, you know, looked like they were balanced and would draft. Um, so, yeah, he's one that we're thinking about. Um, we'd love to be able to breed to Metallic cat, whether we can swing that or not. That was one of our motivations for selling Metallic Storm was maybe to breed one to Metallic Cat. That was a, a goal. Um, yeah. We've we've got two Metallic Cat mares. We've got an older one that our daughter shows and Linda shows and we've got a two-year-old and we, we obviously had Metallic Storm and all three of them have been really nice horses, really trainable and and good-minded and, and um, yeah, like, I mean, it's – one of the, the things that we have learned throughout the progression is that the, the best training aid you can have is a really well-bred horse. Yeah. If they're built right, if their uh, mind's good, they're just so much easier to train. And um, it just – it does the – they don't train themselves, but they just have that ability to retain training and make it easier than, than it really works for us. And – you know, you don't always strike gold and there's not always metallic storms, but, um, you know, if you can give yourself every advantage by having a horse that, that um, you know, maybe the mother was successful or the father was successful, I mean, that's what we look for now. And so we wouldn't really ever go and buy something that we didn't see the parents or, you know, like them or um, it, we've just found that, when they've had that pedigree behind them, they generally have have had more luck. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair enough. Well, Jim, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast, mate. Um, really enjoyed catching up with you, uh, even though you only live about probably 20 minutes over the hill. We've, um, <laughs> we've done a tight pull. <laughs> but, um, no, thanks for doing this, mate. No, my pleasure. And I thank you for having me. And, um, yeah, I really think what you and Kylie are doing is a great thing. Linda and I are massive podcast fans. We listen to 
yours and a lot of others and and yeah i think it's it's a great way of of spreading information yeah no we we're really enjoying doing it that's for sure and um yeah we appreciate all your support my pleasure pax not a problem Well, thanks, guys. That's the episode done with Jim McCallum. Thank you very much for listening in. We sure hope you enjoyed it. I thought that was a great conversation with Jim. I really took away a lot from that. He's a great guy to sit down and have a yarn with. And I thought it was really interesting finding out and dissecting the different parts of buying and selling livestock. And um, I really also liked exploring that part about, you know, working cattle, how there's, it's all about accuracy and where you are. I just think there's so much to that and I can't wait to explore that further along the line. Well guys that's going to do us for this week's episode so we sure hope you enjoyed that and make sure you look out on our Facebook page as we're doing a promo this week and giving away a few caps and a quarterly subscription to Camp Draft Training Online. So be sure to tell your friends about that and get busy typing. Righto guys, till next week we'll catch you then. I ignite like kerosene But at the end of the day I earn my pay And a rambler man it seems One shot, two shot Baby, let's ride this rodeo Three shot, four, five, honey I'm the rebel One step, two step Baby, put your foot flat to the floor I'm not a first-class citizen I know every backtrack out of here I'll outrun you if I can Feel the rush, the push and chub I'm like a flame almost a fire And if you're trying to work my buttons You've got a madman's dark desire One shot, two shot, baby Let's ride this rodeo Three shot, four, five, honey I'm a rebel Put your foot flat to the floor Three step four on baby I'm an outlaw One shot, two shot Baby, let's ride this rodeo Three shot, four Let's ride.